You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. This podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel and this is a podcast where we host in-depth conversations on topics, issues and policies affecting both my electorate of Goldstein and also the rest of Australia. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording, the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. And I'd like to extend that respect to any First Nations listeners tuning in today. Today, we have a big lineup to discuss the state of youth mental health in Australia. Professor Pat McGorry AO is the Executive Director of Origen and Professor of Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Pat's a world-leading researcher in the area of early psychosis and youth mental health, and he led the advocacy which resulted in the National Youth Mental Health Foundation that we know today as Headspace. Also joining me, we have Dr Mike Freelander, MP, the Labor member for MacArthur, with a career spanning 37 years as a dedicated paediatrician in Campbelltown. Mike has consistently championed the welfare of our youth, ensuring they receive optimal opportunities for a promising future. And finally, we're joined by Andrew Wallace MP, the Liberal member for Fisher, who's passionate about improving mental health outcomes with a particular focus on youth mental health, suicide prevention, eating disorder treatment and veteran and first responder wellbeing. Thanks to the three of you for joining me today for this podcast. Thank you. Pleasure. Patrick, I will start with you uh, for an overview. Uh, In your recent paper in the Medical Journal of Australia, you write that mental illnesses are the chronic diseases of the young. Could you help us with an overview of the current state of youth mental health in Australia? Yes, thanks, thanks, Zoe. Um, The title of of this paper was Mental Health of Young Australians Dealing with a Public Health Crisis. And that proposition is, is supported by some pretty... Uh, worrying or, or alarming uh, data from within Australia and also from many other countries around the world, which is showing that even when that statement was made uh, 15 years ago or so, um, that they are the main health problem of young people with mental ill health these days. The situation deteriorated sharply over that last 15-year period. Probably the best data we have is the very rigorous ABS, uh, National Mental Health Survey, that was, con- that was conducted in 2020 and 2021. And that was 15 years after the previous one. And the age group that we work with, teenagers and young adults, the the annual prevalence in 2007 was 26% of young people were diagnosable um, with a mental uh, condition, mental health condition. And by um, 2021, that had had increased to 39%. Now, that is is an unprecedented jump in prevalence, which signifies that something very significant has changed in our society over that period of time, creating a much higher level of, of need for care. And, and we have similar data from the US, uh, from the UK, from Denmark, it, almost every country where they measure things properly, we've got the same pattern emerging. Uh, and so that, that's what that paper is about. Why is this happening? Uh, and how we, we really need to turn our minds to prevention as well as strengthening our crumbling, you know, youth mental health system within this country. Yes. So just briefly, um, because we'll drill down into this sort of the course of the conversation, but what do you think are the key factors driving that spike? That That's the, the central question. Absolutely, Zoe. Uh, and uh, I mean, we, we 
uh, so alarmed by this. We've we've expanded our policy institute and rebranded it as the Origin Institute, and we're drawing in a whole range of new expertise as best we can to answer that question because there's a lot of speculation about things like, you know, social media and so on. But uh, so I, I think it's 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 got to be a combination of several mega trends, <clears throat> and the relative contrib- contribution of each of these mega trends is not known. But if you look at the economic, the socio-economic predicament of young people has declined seriously over the last 20 years or so and it's 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 um there's been wealth transfer of about 10 or 15 percent from from generation z this new generation to older people that's one big thing and that's made up of a number of components as well which is like obviously housing um pressures housing costs rental costs university fees you know being indexed um Everywhere you look, the economic predicament of young people is, 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 is less secure than it was. Casualization of the workforce, which the government now is starting to tackle, I noticed, um, just recently trying to stabilize the, the work conditions of young people who, who are so vulnerable in this way. Those sorts of things are a, a global trend in the face of neoliberalism of, of, of the last 40 years. So that's one, one big candidate, set of candidates there. The social media environment is obviously unregulated and, and very risky in many ways for young people. That's probably the most popular one to be the, the scapegoat for this, but we don't know the relative contribution of that. And then there's climate change. Origin just launched a, a, ma- a major climate change statement from young people yesterday. And, and climate change is clearly playing a role in terms of the, the, the security. If you put all these factors together, all the candidate megatrends, they all can be summarised as growing insecurity and uh, about the current life situation and, and the future of young people. And they are, they are really feeling that, and that must be interacting with the vulnerability of this stage of life in some sort of way. Mike, I want to come to you. I'm interested in your perspective as both an MP and a long-serving medical doctor. What resonates with you uh, from what Patrick has just said? And also, can, can you speak to some of the challenges that young people encounter when they're trying to access help? Well, actually, a lot of uh, what Patrick said res- resonates. I-, I was going to sum it up uh, by using three words, uncertainty, instability and inequality. And I certainly see that in my electorate. And w- we- we've sort of fooled ourselves by thinking that these issues aren't affecting our kids. And, th- and they-, they see the difficulty, the financial difficulty that people have you know, for example, in my electorate of, of Campbelltown, it used to be seen as quite a cheap place to live with cheap uh, uh, rents and, and relatively cheap uh, housing values. That's no longer the, the case. Most of the houses in my electorate uh, now cost a million dollars or more. Uh, parents, people are borrowing far bigger amounts that, than either Patrick or I would have thought of uh, borrowing in our younger days. Um, and the rents have now increased to huge amounts uh, for relatively humble uh, dwelling. So that, that affects our kids. It affects our schools. The schools are having to do more with even less. There's been some cutbacks in some of the social programs in our local primary schools. And I think the kids are very anxious and very stressed about that. And, and I, I still go to a lot of our local schools. I was at one this morning and the school counsellor brought up with me the fact that, that she is seeing more and more very young children with severe anxiety. And many of them that's expressed in either school refusal or things like uh, selective mutism and, and issues that were quite rare previously in young kids, we're now seeing relatively commonly. 
And and you know, I think our teachers are getting better trained and they're they're, they're getting used to dealing with these issues. But it still does become a matter of resource allocation and supporting kids when they're very young. I think Patrick uh, is, is very um, uh, positive about the effects of early intervention in kids with, with some of these issues of anxiety and school refusal and, and, and trying to support them early rather than waiting until it becomes a major issue by the time they reach adolescence, and I'm a great believer of that. Andrew, what are some of the broader effects that you've seen in your community there in Fisher? And also, how do you think mental health issues impact further than the individual? Because obviously in families that, and indeed in school environments and such, uh, the impact is far wider. Well, I think certainly social media is having a, a huge impact on, on the lives of, uh, of young people, uh, social media slash mobile phone use. And I know, you know, every generation has a you know, something that we think is bad for kids. You know, when I was growing up, it was Atari computer games. Um, but the the prevalence of social media into every aspect of young people's lives now is it's so ubiquitous that uh, there's no escape. Doesn't matter what time of day or where they are, uh, young people are attached to the phone like politicians. Uh, to the hip, and it's it's impacting upon young, particularly what we're seeing in my view, uh, it is uh, impacting upon body dysmorphia, issues, eating disorders. Young people are you know, taking photos of themselves, and they are doctoring them up with filters, etc., to try and make themselves look good, uh, in, in inverted commas. Um, because there's such a, a, a greater deal of pressure upon young people to fit a certain stereotype of what it is to, to have a hot body or to be good looking. And uh, most of these pressures are absolutely unrealistic. Uh, that, that is a, a huge problem in my view. Another huge problem is the, the prevalence of access to, to hardcore violent pornography. That's really significantly impacting upon young people's concepts of what a healthy sex life is all about. You know, we've done uh, a number of inquiries in relation to both these things, and uh, we know that, that, that it is leading to poor mental health outcomes for young people. Yeah, I want to get a bit further into the social media thing in a moment. But first, Pat, I'll come back to you. Uh, in your recent article in the Medical Journal of Australia, you refer to uh, the cohort of young people uh, that you talk about as the missing middle. So those with mild to moderate mental health care needs that don't fit into either entry level or more severe models of care. What would bridging that gap look like? Yeah, thanks, Zoe. It's a great question. It sort of um, touches on something that Mike was uh, talking about before. So, you know, basically... What we have, the positive thing, and it's been a bipartisan or multipartisan sort of thing, we have built a sort of um, a more bespoke primary care entry-level system with Headspace, and obviously it's, it's, it works with local GPs and schools as well. So it, it wasn't bad, actually, for, um, compared to what other countries had done. So the primary care level was good until the collapse of bulk billing more recently and, and now we've lost about 50% of the staff out of headspaces over the last few years. So it's really overwhelmed with this this rising demand, even the primary care level. But beyond that, and I was working in the headspace in Coffs Harbour uh, last Monday 
and I saw about nine or ten young people who are in that category. Like, I'm, very few headspaces have got any psychiatric input, and these people need multidisciplinary team care, um, including psychiatrists, but also other disciplines as well. And Andrew would relate to this too through his great work with eating disorders <clears throat> up in Queensland. But um, you need a specialised team for the, for those people. Um, and probably I, I would think somewhere between 40 or even up to 50% of the Headspace people who come into primary care level with, through Headspace and also local GPs need that sort of that, uh, like a longer tenure of care and more specialised evidence-based care. It can still be early intervention. I mean, if you look at psychotic illnesses, which, which I worked on a lot, we know that if you actually capture those emerging illnesses in the, in, the, in the early stages of those, you get much better outcomes and you save heaps of money further down the track. So it does work. It's evidence-based. But we haven't built those backup systems for the primary care. We've got state government-funded services which are very uh, under-resourced for, for the need. And, that, and so everyone has to end up getting very much worse. Eating disorders are a great example of that. You cannot get treatment for anorexia until you are almost in a life-threatening condition. And you know that, Zoe, from what you've been doing in that space too. So that's, that was the same in psychosis. It's the same with everything uh, because, you know, you, you, you have a sort of a, a light-touch primary care thing which works for, say, for, for a fair bit, but the, the people that it doesn't work for or, 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 or are developing more serious illness, they have to get really to rock bottom before they, before they can get help. So there's a huge missing piece um, and, and that has we, – we have models. We, we've been developing these models at Origin for years, but we can't get them scaled uh, to back up the, the primary care system across the country. We, we've got the blueprints. They're ready, and, but they have to be um, implemented and, and, uh, and, and then refined. Just before I go back to Mike, Andrew, I want to come back to you just on sort of a, a related piece that Pat mentioned, which is sort of around stigma – and that goes to eating disorders, but I think mental health generally, you know, does it strike you that as a society we just haven't sort of grasped the fact that mental health issues are medical conditions and therefore in terms of public spending or our focus on these programs, there's a, a reticence to provide the the scale of support that's required? Yeah, look, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that despite the, the great work that you know, many people have put in uh, to to elevate the knowledge and understanding of, of mental health issues in our community in, in, the, in the last 10, 15 years, there is still a very, very significant stigma uh, around people who are suffering from mental health conditions. We know absolutely there is a total insufficient amount of funding which is provided for mental health, people who suffer from mental health problems, both inpatient and outpatient. You know, Pat said you know, earlier before, you've, you've virtually got to be on your deathbed before you can get much support from the health service or, or health services for if you're suffering from anorexia. But it, it's much broader than that. You know, people who suffer from anorexia or other eating disorders that are unwell enough to be hospitalised for, for, say, refeeding. Um, when they uh, get to a certain body weight, uh, then they're, they're basically discharged with very little after-discharge care and it, it just becomes a, a, a continuous revolving door. 
Um, and, and that goes across the board for not just eating disorder care, but in mental health, both at a, at a young people's approach or young people's side of things, but absolutely in adult mental health as well. The, the state health systems are very ill-equipped to deal with the, the underlying problems that are causing mental health. And it's, let's get you out of the community. We'll put you in a, in a, in a place where you won't be a danger to others or yourself. Uh, we'll see you through your period of psychosis. We'll try and get you medically well. And then, uh, out you go back into the community with, with very little support. And, uh, there's no wonder why you know, that we do have that revolving door approach. Mike, coming back to you, I mean, some of the statistics are pretty stark. One, for example, that among young women, the prevalence of mental health issues can be as high as 48%. No, it's 50%. Yeah, so given that, uh, if we don't deal with this on a whole of society level, do we run the risk of sort of entrenching uh, sort of intergenerational disadvantage for for these young people who will struggle for for their whole lives. Well, well, I, I, I would suggest we already uh, are seeing that. Um, I mean, as a pediatrician, we're we're very keen to talk about the social determinants of health, and uh, there's no more stark example than, than in uh, mental health. And uh, you know, there are programs and governments of all persuasions. I, I, I'm not trying to politicise this. Um, have tried to put in place. Uh, some ways of getting at the people access to support. Um, recently, the, our government, the Albanese government, announced the Head to Health Centres, which are rolling out, and they'll be part of the answer. But at the moment, it is pretty fragmented. It depends very much on your postcode, how you can access services. Now, Pat, uh, admittedly, has been um, part of trying to get a broader access to treatment around the country, not just the, the inner cities. I I, I'd like to recognise that, but it still does very much depend on where you live, what resources your family may have as to how you get access to, to treatment. Eating disorders are a very important part of, of that answer as well. So the social determinants are very important. Stability of schooling, stability of housing, and stability of income are also very important in all of that. And as a treating physician, it is extremely difficult in an outer suburban area to manage something like uh, a severe eating disorder. There still aren't uh, good pathways to care. If I see an adolescent with a severe eating disorder requiring refeeding, very hard for me to manage that in an outer metropolitan hospital without access to all the supports, dietitians, uh, psychiatrists, uh, psychologists, gastroenterologists, the whole range of specialties that you need in a team approach to eating disorders. So we do have a fragmented approach. It does depend on your postcode. Politicians of all stripes have tried to improve the situation, but I do still think there there is a real stigma and fragmentation in the way the whole system works. And Andrew spoke about the revolving door. Well, we see that every day. I've even spoken to our local police about the revolving door in adolescents with mental health issues where they get picked up, brought to hospital, they get treated, they get discharged, little follow-up, they end up being picked up again and it just goes around in circles. So we need a much more holistic approach and one that deals with those social determinants of health. Just before I, I move on to 
sort of talking about what some of the solutions might look like. Pat, I wanted to come back to you in regard to the impact of COVID. And, well, obviously, I'm in Melbourne where we were locked down in, intermittently for the best part of two years. Just how much of a snowball effect has that had, do you think? So I think the best data on that comes from the Hilda survey, which I mentioned in the, in the, in the article too, because that's, that's the household uh, survey. I've forgotten the full title of it, but it's done every year in Australia, a very comprehensive survey of a very large sample of Australian uh, households across the whole of society. And they have a mental health measure in there called the SF36, which is quite a good, solid measure of, of mental health and well-being. And that showed what I described before, a steady decline over the last 15, 20 years in the mental health of this age group, the teenagers and young adults, not not the other age groups, actually, not the other age groups, but, but particularly that age group. And um, it shows during the pandemic a sudden further dive down. Now, we don't know whether that's come up a bit since the pandemic. I, I think there's a bit of a cohort effect there. The people who were harmed psychologically during the pandemic, that will continue and wash through into the future. Probably Mike would be seeing that too. Well, I've certainly seen it. Uh, school refusal, Mike mentioned that. That's a, at unprecedented levels um, now. So I think it was very damaging. Young people are uniquely vulnerable because of the social determinants, because their their work and their education were they're, they're at a very exquisitely sensitive period of their lives. And even the, you know their working conditions are much more fragile. Um, the casualised um, workforces and so on, so they suffered a lot. And, and also, it's the stage of life when your peer group, which is forming and 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 uh, solidifying and, and and getting more secure, you you were cut off from them you know, basically. Um, the, the very necessary nurturing socialisation that that happens that is supposed to happen. And, you, you know, for example, I've met university students who did their whole degree without going onto the campus. I mean, that's a disaster, you know, I think. And, and so that definitely the pandemic was bad. But this was something, as the, as the U.S. Surgeon General has said, this crisis has been building for 10, 15, 20 years before the pandemic. The, the pandemic put it on the skids. And it's interesting that you get a public health crisis in this area and, and there's not much of a government response anywhere. Um, if, if it was a 50% rise in asthma or childhood cancer or anything else like that, we would have seen very significant measures taken to address it. And, and we still haven't seen that. Not to say that we won't, because I had a very good meeting with Mark Butler last week, but uh, he definitely understands this, the seriousness and nature, and nature of this problem. He just wants to make sure the solutions that we put on deck are, are the right ones. We don't want to waste money. And uh, we can get onto that later, I guess. Andrew, we've talked a bit about your work on eating disorders and, you know, the idea of multidisciplinary approaches being effective. What what thoughts do you have sort of at a higher level around collaboration between government, industry, academia and sort of bringing all those pieces together to actually drive change? Well, I think the a multidisciplinary approach is vital. Uh, I think we need to be looking at the one-stop shop approaches of having a, a multidisciplinary access to services for inpatients, whether that's ideally not in a hospital setting. Uh, when we were in government, the coalition uh, provided, in fact, built Australia's first residential eating disorder facility in my electorate uh, in the hinterland, and we provided some $70 million for uh, the states to do likewise. That's 
sort of seems to be languishing and going nowhere at the moment. But that sort of one-stop shop that is not a, a secure psychiatric facility for young people, which is where, you know, ideally young people should not be, uh, young people with mental health problems, uh, except in that absolute, you know, worst-case scenario, you shouldn't be treated in those facilities. They're pretty, pretty average places to be. And if we're able to provide residential facilities for people with with mental health conditions with those one-stop shop, but, but really importantly, what we need to be able to provide is outpatient step-up, step-down services as well. So to try and prevent someone getting to a point where they need to be hospitalised or at least going into a residential, we need those uh, opportunities to be able to to deal with more serious cases than what uh, I think Headspace does. Headspace is great and it has its place, but in in my view, Headspace is is good at dealing with in the early periods of, of uh, mental health problems for young people. But if they become more protracted or more serious, then uh, I think the the Headspace model seems to get a little bit challenged. Mike, what do you see in regard to refining sort of collaborative approaches between healthcare professionals and policymakers to to better address mental health needs and also that idea of more integrated collaboration between academia, industry and government to, to bring about solutions? Yeah, well, clearly anyone in health thinks about this a lot because uh, we have a federated system and uh, unfortunately, that can sometimes lead to fragmentation and delays in policy implementation. I think that is a, a big difficulty. The National Cabinet, um, I think, is a really good idea, which I know that Mark Butler has been working very hard on working with his state colleagues to have a more integrated approach to mental health issues. So, but believe me, Mark is, uh, is, has been absolutely... Um, outstanding in the way he's approached uh, mental health. He wants evidence-based policy and he wants to be able to work with the state so that we do have an integrated system. And, uh, you you know, at the moment we we have difficulties even with things like electronic health records on a federal-state basis that they don't talk to each other. Uh, It's difficult for GPs and, and psychologists to interact with the hospital system through electronic means, and, and we're very keen to try and improve that, which will make our communications much better. Because as Andrew said, and as Pat knows, the biggest problem for those with severe mental illness, either in the adult or paediatric space, is often the ongoing support and follow-up. We have very few community psychiatrists uh, who will bulk bill people, so their cost uh, barriers to getting proper community follow-up even for people with very severe mental illness. I'm a great believer in a case management type program where people can be managed, whether they're in hospital or in the community, through one central person who knows their story and is familiar with them. And we need to work harder on that and integrating with our general practices. That's one reason why Mark Butler has increased the bulk billing incentives and has introduce new, uh, longer consultation item numbers to try and help, particularly in the mental health space. So we are trying to 
help this problem. It's not going to happen in one budget, but I know in the next budget there'll be further measures to try and improve this case management model for people with severe mental illness, and I think we all believe in that. I'd be interested in Pat's views, but I know that he has strongly supported that sort of model previously. Yeah, and so, Pat, I will come back to you for your thoughts about what direction we need to go uh, to streamline this, to, to better integrate it and to move towards some solutions. Thanks, Zoe. Well, I, I did uh, outline four solutions in my paper. Uh, but just before I mention them, I, um, I shared a, a book with Mark Butler last week called Side Effects, which was written by David Haslam, who was the chair of NICE in the UK. I don't know if Mike or Andrew have read this book, but it's a great book. He's, he's, a, he's a family doctor in the UK who chaired the National Institute of Clinical Effectiveness which sets the standards for healthcare generally. And, and he basically says our health systems are, in the Western world are unsustainable basically, uh, in terms of financing. And uh, I mean, I'll still look at the US to see that. But, and he says we've got to invest much more strongly in primary and secondary care in, in, in the community and stop be, building massive, expensive hospitals. I mean, well, not necessarily stop, but that's we've, we've got to do a bit of both. But we, the, the, the pendulum's got to swing much more towards the former. And, for example, you know, we're funding things emotionally in, in healthcare. So any new cancer drug which prolongs life by another six weeks, there's no restraint on, on spending in, in, that, in that dimension because it's populist sort of thing. I mean, you, you can say, you know, obviously no one's going to say don't, don't try to cure or treat cancer, but he, he also makes the point if we cured all cancers tomorrow, life expectancy would go from 82 to 85. You know, if, we, if we invest in the primary care and, and the treatment of the mentally ill who die 15 to 20 years earlier than everybody else, we would increase life expectancy much more effectively if we did those sort of things. So that's, that, that's the big picture. The health system needs a major rethink, needs to be funded on more logic, and evidence rather than emotion. The four solutions involve what we've been talking about, and I think very great agreement between the three of us and, and um, on many of these issues. Prevention. We've got to, when you see this rise in prevalence of that order, like Mike's been talking about, this social determinants or the mega trends driving that have got to be understood and, and, and tackled. I think the government's made a couple of steps, and I think it might be you know, multi-partisan for this in addressing this already, like the well-being budget idea. In other words, you've got to actually, you know, measure things that are important to the whole success and cohesion of society, not just pure, you know, GDP growth and things like that. So that's how to do that is obviously, you know, requires a lot of thought. And the mega trends that we've all been discussing have got to be you know, wound back somehow. And and inequality, Mike mentioned inequality. I think that's absolutely top line one of all, of all of those. Second focus is what Andrew was talking about, early intervention, making sure the entry level is fit for purpose. And, and Headspace is 17 years old, hasn't been uh, reimagined or reinvented or, or refinanced. The head-to-health centres that Mike mentioned get three or four million per centre. Headspace gets one million. And it's broken down over the last few years because of the bulk billing collapse. It needs a major, major rethink and redesign, so the entry portal is stronger and working with other GPs in the area. The next level is, is the missing middle that we talked about, which is building those multidisciplinary teams that Mike, with case management that Mike just talked about for the young people to back up You know the primary care level. We have been doing that for 15, 20 years in Melbourne. We have a model we, we, the early psychosis model, which is in eight regions of Australia, can be expanded to deploy that model in more places, and and that would would have a huge effect, I think. 
And that's probably a, a, a case for joint investment of state and federal in that space, like with the bilaterals that the previous government in a very good way did set up as well. So building on that to build these backup systems, again, that's secondary care in the community. It's not hospitals. And finally, I think um, the NDIS been talking to Bill Shorten as well as Mark Butter about this and, and the NDIS review. Mental health, the biggest cause of disability in Australia and the number one chronic disease is an afterthought in the NDIS. And um, only 3% of the age group that we're talking about here get access to the NDIS. And yet, you know, they're the, they're the gateway to disability from mental illness across the whole lifespan. So some tier two reform around, which I've talked to Bruce Bonahady and Lisa Paul about, some tier two refashioning of the NDIS, but combining it with mental health funding. So health and social services both invest in a, in a single agency that does both things. So Headspace is a small example of that because we do have social services funding for the IPS workers in Headspace. So instead of having 50 different agencies you know, providing the care in a fragmented way, you, you integrate the care, as, as Mike talked about. And one of the big problems that has, has fragmented care more than anything I've ever seen in Australia was the setting up of the PHNs because they've got this competitive tendering model which just fragments the, the, the meagre dollars we actually do have into different agencies. Everyone gets 50 cents and, the, and people have to traipse around the suburbs going to agency to agency, duplicating, inefficient. And we've got 31 bureaucracies which, which don't, are doing a worse job than what we had before. I'm going to close uh, this conversation momentarily, but Mike, I can hear you there agreeing with some of the things Pat's saying. And I wanted to throw a term at you, um, which is the concept of mental wealth. And I was just wondering, you know, if I throw the term mental wealth at you, Mike, what comes to mind? What what do you think mental wealth looks like? Well, I think it looks like resilience to start with. Um, I'll just say that I totally agree with Pat uh, about the PhD. Uh, talk about fragmentation and, uh, in, in fact, breaking down models of care that did work into ones that don't. They're the primary reason, but... That's, that's a separate issue. But in terms of mental wealth, I, I, I really see it in my community. The people that uh, do well from a mental health point of view, be they kids, be they adults, be they families, are those that are resilient, that can cope with change, that can cope with everything that the modern world can throw at us and are able to uh, pivot and to change and, and deal with each problem as it occurs. They're the ones that will do well. And that mental wealth will translate into other forms of prosperity, be it families, be it you know, business, be it, be it uh, hospital systems or health systems. And that's what I try and tell people that I see that in schools or in, in when I consult with families that resilience is just so important in the modern world. And in a way, going back, it's a bit of a, bit of a, a long bow, but social media, I think, undermines resilience because it continues negative messaging all along the line and people often react to that by feeling imp impotent to change. And, of course, in social media, the loudest voices may be few, but they're very loud. And, um, unfortunately, to deal with that often does require a lot of resilience. So my main thoughts about mental wealth, and it's a really good term because we all need it, uh, is around resilience and schools can help in that. And I spoke today at a particular school in my electorate about trying to build resilience in, in young kids, starting from a very early age, how to cope with change, how to deal with stress, 
how to deal with things that you're not expecting. So I think resilience is the primary message I'd like to be teaching if I could. Dr. Mike Freelander, MP, member for MacArthur, Andrew Wallace, MP, the member for Fisher, and Professor Pat McGorry, the Executive Director of Origin. Thanks to the three of you for joining us on Find Your Voice. Oh, thanks to you, Zoe. Thank you. Thanks, Zoe. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, 677 Nepean Highway, Brighton East, Victoria.